Hey there, I'm your host, Kan Jun, and we are Generally Intelligent, an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Katja came to machine learning from physics, and she's now doing 3D geometric scene understanding at the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems in Germany. At this year's NEURIPS, Katja presented her most recent work entitled Graph, Generative Radiance Fields for 3D-Aware Image Synthesis. I encourage you to look at it because the visuals are beautiful and they simply can't be described in audio. Welcome. We're so excited to have you. I know you're working on 3D scene understanding now. How did you develop your initial research interests? And how have they evolved over time? I think I was always a person that's been very interested in video, photography, basically imaging, and also computer graphics. I was playing a lot of video games, but what I spent the most time on was actually designing the characters that you play with. I spent the most time in the beginning on getting my character to look super cool. And so this is kind of where I started. And then I majored in physics. At that time, I was getting super interested in physics simulations. And this is kind of how I got into programming. Yeah, I wasn't super interested in programming from the beginning, to be honest, but this is where I thought, oh, it's super useful. I continued with over classical image processing to computer vision. Since then, I stick with it because I just really loved it. That led me to do a PhD in computer vision. What made computer vision interesting to you over all the other things that you looked at? I feel if you visualize something right and there's so much information in it, right? You can explain things extremely well if you just visualize them. You don't need a lot of words or complicated formulas. Sometimes it's the easiest thing if you just see it. That's what always fascinated me about images and in general vision. This is what I really, really love about this area. What do you feel has been most interesting that you've encountered as you started thinking about visualization? The most interesting part to me was what is needed to extract information from images on the sides of humans, but also in particular on the sides of machines, right? What, what do they need to do to actually get information out and to get a meaning out of it? Because what they get is basically just numbers. It's just pixels. How can you get an understanding in there? Is it even an understanding, right? Do you have thoughts on that philosophical question? If they really have an understanding or not? Yeah, what kind of? I think currently we're not there yet. For me, what we do have is task specific. We tell the networks or the algorithm exactly what we want to do, and then it does exactly what we told it to. But it's difficult to be precise about what you want. When we work with these algorithms, we see all the time that they don't work as we expect. So currently, maybe they do have an understanding, but it's definitely not aligned currently with what our understanding is in many cases. When you build these networks, they don't always work like you expect. Are there any salient stories that come to mind of things where you're like, well, I really expected it to work this way, but it just absolutely did not? Some very well-known examples, adversarial examples, right? In our area where we did 3D modeling, I was kind of surprised how the model can learn to cheat. So sometimes it kind of masks out things in generated images. If it really doesn't know how things should look, then it places like some weird white objects in front and kind of masks out things. Do you have some kind of metric internally for, oh, okay, at this point, I feel like models do understand what's going on in an image or what's going on in a scene. How do you know? We work a lot just with visualizations and we just really look at what the model is generating and FID scores or metrics in terms of numbers, they... Mm -hmm 
are good to get a rough overview of a full data set. How is my model performing? But I get the best intuition if I really look at what is it visualizing. Because for generative models, it's particularly nice because you can actually see what they learned from the data. But on the other hand, of course, you need to look at a lot of examples. For me, I needed to develop quite some intuition to see common failures, to just mm -hmm. look at these images and get an understanding for what's actually going wrong here. And that mm. took a while. What are some examples of those? Typical artifacts, for example. For 2D images, you sometimes get these checker artifacts, right? Where you have these small pixely areas in the image that looks a bit like a checker board pattern. Mm. In the beginning, I didn't really know where they come from. And there's a series of posts where they kind of explain the way that you generate the images. If you are not careful, that can cause these patterns. Or in our case, for the last project in 3D, we had small issues with resolution or we had some periodic patterns repeatedly. It took us quite a while to get an intuition what's going on there. It also depends a lot on how you generate images. So for example, in our last project, we didn't use a conventional 2D gun. We also used a fully connected neural network instead of the convolutional neural network that also has an effect on the artifacts that you can see. What was the story with the periodic patterns? People found out that if you use these positional encodings together with fully connected neural networks, mm -hmm. you can get a great boost in image fidelity. Because of the way that these positional encodings work, mm -hmm. you do get sometimes periodic artifacts or periodic patterns. And it was actually related to this. How did you get rid of it? It was helping to sample more points along the way, so basically to increase our resolution. Also, that came at a cost of more computation. Mm -hmm. It was kind of hard to fully get rid of it. So it was a little bit brute forced, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the boost from these encodings, it was just too great to just not use them. I noticed that with your paper so far, you've been quite interested in how do we find 3D representations that are good representations of an image or of a scene. How would you describe your current research interests? I'm really interested in 3D generative modeling, but the most important part for me in it is to make it controllable. Existing generative models, they do a great job at generating photorealistic images and making them look super real. But it's very hard to really do something with these images. And you really want to get more control. You maybe want to change perspective. You want to maybe change a part of the image. You just want more control. And this is the main focus of our research and also of the previous project before this year's NeurIPS one. We were also interested in generating controllable scenes. You could generate different objects and then rotate them or translate them. So the first thing we noticed is that it's very hard to get supervision for this because 3D supervision is usually not readily available. And this is why we thought it would be great if we could just learn it from images. Now we had a lot of advances in differentiable rendering. It really seemed a good time to start this learning just from images and learning from 2D supervision. Can you speak a little bit to the story and the origins and everything for the first paper? How did it come about? Was it really inspired by that? And you just sort of coded out the whole thing and it worked as expected and you're like, great, we're done. Or did it sort of evolve from another project? It was actually my first project in the PhD and I came there and joined the project. We kind of had this idea that it's probably super difficult to learn to model 3D objects directly only from 2D images. The idea was to <clears throat> model them with easy geometric 3D shapes. And mm -hmm. by modifying these 3D shapes, for example, by rotating a 3D cube or a 3D sphere, mm -hmm. you kind of tell the model it should also correspondingly rotate the object in the image. Mm -hmm. And in this 
project, we weren't so much interested in getting the correct 3D model, but we just mm -hmm. wanted to have a correctly transforming generated image. That was kind of the main idea there. Could you give us a brief description of what that paper was about and how the model worked? The main insight was that it's probably very hard to directly model the 3D object and that it's enough if we can generate an image that transforms realistically. The idea was to model a simple 3D object that corresponds mm -hmm. to a more complicated rendered object. Modifying this 3D primitive, we were able to transform the more complicated object, the rendered object, accordingly. Mm -hmm. It was really cool work. Output photos look pretty good and you can actually control them. And it seems like they move in kind of a reasonable way, which is really cool. It's for multiple objects, right? So you can have three different cars and you can rotate them and translate them around. Does the model need to know how many objects there are ahead of time during training or how is that part handled? The model does not need to know how many objects are in the scene. And for us, it was kind of important to not have this constraint, to mm -hmm. not need to specify like now we have two or three objects. Ultimately, we can decide how many objects we want to generate, but we wanted to be able to train with data with different amounts of objects to give the model the opportunity. So in the model, we randomly mask out some of the objects, thereby we always generate multiple objects, but in the image, there will be more or less a random number. We do make the assumption that random masking is correct, that all numbers of objects are equally distributed, but we don't assume any specific number. Did it actually start from the spheres and cubes and that transformation and the point cloud stuff was added later? Exactly. Mm. We started from spheres. In the beginning, we even generated images with spheres. We usually have this philosophy in the group that you need to start from a super simple setting. Especially in gun training, there's no other approach to making it really work because these models are so tricky to train. From what I've experienced, it's just a really good approach to start very simple and then mm -hmm. increase complexity very slowly and step by step. For this project, it was also very tricky to actually get training stable and all these different components to work together. Yeah, that was one of the biggest challenges. Can you talk more about that, about the challenges of that? The biggest challenge is that it's very hard to see what is really going wrong because you don't get some score that is really bad or you don't have a good metric to measure what's the problem. A lot of gun training relies on intuition. You're taking models that readily work and then you try to modify them because you always want to have this balance between the generator that generates your images and the discriminator that is trying to detect what's real and what's uh, generated images. And you need to make these models approximately balanced so that one doesn't learn much faster than the mm -hmm. other because that will get your training to collapse. A fair amount of engineering goes into these models and just to see that they're balanced and that they act well together. Did you yeah. feel like at the end of the project you had a good grasp on it? It was like, I, I can make these things do what I want. Or is it more like, whew, good thing we got that working. I don't know if I can make it go any further both. <laughs> so in this toy setting that we had, things were really working quite well. We experimented with very simple toy cars on mm -hmm. uniform backgrounds. We even recorded a real world data set, but very simple one with also uniform backgrounds and some mm -hmm. fruit that we put in front. And it was very basic geometric shapes. But in this setting, I would say the model worked as we expected. And you could see that the transformations that we did really corresponded to what should happen in the images. With this project, it was very hard to scale up to more complex scenes because ultimately it needed to disentangle the objects in the scenes without any supervision. And then mm -hmm. also at least get a 3D understanding of each of the individual objects without any 3D knowledge. That was very challenging. 
it's a nice way of getting around it. It seemed like one of the failure cases was still that it would sometimes sort of lump two objects together or lump it into the background or something like that. But it didn't happen most of the time, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that was definitely some failure cases, but usually it disentangled the objects correctly. Mm -hmm. I guess it's also kind of a reasonable failure case because you actually never define what an object is, right? So that network needs to learn by itself what is an object and how is it defined. If you go to a more abstract case, it's sometimes not that obvious, right? If you, for example, mm -hmm. think of a vase and you have flowers in it, is like, are the flowers one object and the vase is the other one? Or is it actually one object together? That's on a higher level. It can be quite ambiguous and it's a difficult task to learn unsupervised. It is very unclear. Like, what is an object? Is the whole set of flowers or the vase and the flowers or the petals or each <laughs> petal? You can determine that or decide that, I think is a pretty difficult question. So it seems like in this one, you just sort of leave it up. You mask them out going to have a uniform distribution number of objects. That's the way that you get around that problem in a practical sense. Exactly. But, um, mm -hmm. I think there's a fair chance that if you incorporate more supervision, like segmentations or depth mm -hmm. as well, that you could, again, boost this model. Yeah. So you published on with email, and then the next paper was using radiance fields. How did you go from this working with white clouds to moving to radiance fields? And can you tell us a little bit about the next paper? Well, what we noticed during the CVPR project was that it's actually really hard to scale this approach to photorealism. Yeah. And one reason for this, in our opinion, was the 3D representation that we chose. So mm -hmm. while these primitives are great because they're kind of simple, we found that maybe to scale it up to high photorealism and also to ensure more consistent behavior, because sometimes in the CVPR project, we saw that if we rotate the primitive, that the object kind of flips the direction. So you mm -hmm. had a 180 degree flip. And mm -hmm. we thought maybe there is a better way to encode a 3D object while it still scales well and it's compositional, so you can extend it. Mm -hmm. This is where radiance fields became really interesting. But the first thing that we thought is probably it's a good next step to simplify the problem a little bit and mm -hmm. go one step easier and go to single objects before we tackle like even more complex scenes, get a really mm -hmm. good approach on single objects first and make it work mm -hmm. there. So this is mm -hmm. why we changed the whole problem setting from scenes back to single objects to get something that's really satisfying in that area. The Neural Radiance Fields paper came out and we were like, oh, that sounds like a great representation for our purpose, right? I mean, it's a continuous function. It scales fairly well. It's good in terms of memory. It seemed to be an ideal fit. And we thought, mm -hmm. okay, let's use this and let's play around a bit and try. And this is how we started working on the second project. Yeah. Yeah, so the second paper is called Graph Generative Radiance Fields for 3D Aware Image Synthesis. Can you give a very brief overview of what the general approach is, how it works, et cetera? So the general idea in graph is that we represent 3D objects as neural radiance fields, or we parameterize them as a conditional radiance field. Then we use a physically inspired rendering approach to create images from these 3D representations. The main benefit of our method compared to existing works in this area is that we can actually scale to higher resolution because we do use this continuous representation that scales beneficially with increasing image resolution. The robustness of the like 3D point clouds mm -hmm. I thought was particularly interesting and the way it worked on data sets that you wouldn't expect to have a whole bunch of interesting 3D information that faces data sets, so HQ and things like that. Do you think that you guys succeeded in what you set out to do or were there things that were left that you were like, oh, if only we could have done X? There's kind of a trade-off between how flexible you make the model and how consistent we get really good results, but it's still not this photorealism where I really would love it to be in the best case. So I think we could still get 
better outputs in terms of how realistic it is. The main limitation here was how flexible you make your model. So in our case, we really wanted to have it 3D consistent. So for mm -hmm. us, it was really important that if you change the perspective, that you don't get this flip of identity. If you learn the rendering process, instead of using this physically inspired approach, you tend to get higher quality in your results because you can actually learn these fine details. On the other hand, your rendering can learn whatever it wants and it's hard to restrict it. So you can put an extra constraint on it that also feels a bit cumbersome. It's a trade-off. And especially if you don't have the camera information, you don't have exactly the right post distribution, you will always have a little bit of error in it. This still prevents the images from looking perfectly. So we chose a very simple camera model just on a hemisphere with a more or less fixed radius. If you would make this more advanced or if you could learn this, maybe you could get even better results. In the realm of making image generation controllable, what do you think are the biggest bottlenecks or what holds this back? One of the biggest bottlenecks, we already touched it a bit in our conversation, is that you need to get a stable gun and you need mm -hmm. to make training work. Currently, there's a lot of intuition that needs to go in there and it's really tricky to get these models stable. That's one of the bottlenecks that guns are currently still very challenging to train and very mm. difficult to work with. And it's usually not the case that you apply a method and it just works out of the box. You always need to spend a lot of time to really get it to work on this data. This is one part. And then the other part to really make things 3D controllable is the lack of 3D supervision. Usually for real world scenes, you don't have a 3D model for everything that you can use mm -hmm. to supervise. And you don't have a 3D model of the exact object that you want mm -hmm. to model. Our approach that you can learn this from images is already a step in a good direction with the advances in neural rendering and differentiable rendering. That's now possible, which is great, but you still need to find a good way to incorporate at least a depth map or something that gives you a bit more information to really mm -hmm. scale up to more complex scenes. So it's kind of the question, how much supervision can we realistically get? And how can we smartly incorporate it into the model? Do you think that as a field will ever move past GAN training, like something better for generative near rendering work than GANs? It's kind of a philosophical question, I feel, if you're like more a VAE person or more a GAN person. But currently, oh. these are kind of the, the two main approaches. Like all the other models, at least in terms of image fidelity, currently they're not on par. I'm kind of more like a gun person, but obviously I, I really think in the VAE setting, it's also very intriguing that you have this encoder part and that you can do inference. And this, these are things that I'm missing in a gun training. And sometimes it's said it's more stable because you can actually reconstruct the image. In our last project, we were actually thinking about using a VAE approach just because of these nice stability properties. Then we decided against it because it meant that we would need to use post images because if you want to reconstruct it, you kind of need to know which pose it was taken from. And that's an advantage then again for guns where you don't need to reconstruct exactly the same image. What are your concerns or ethical concerns related to the research field? Do you have ethical concerns on what, yeah, what do you think about that? It's always tricky if you work with generative models, because if you have a super good generative model, you can do amazing things with it. But mm -hmm. of course, you can also do misleading things with it and you can mm -hmm. generate content and Maybe mm -hmm. create scenarios that are not real, right? If we make the step from 2D to 3D work, which I hope because I find it super interesting, it will greatly improve the feeling of 
realness in these VR applications or in the generated content. But at first sight, this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, that's exactly what we want. But you need to be careful. And we should really pay attention that we also have methods that can detect this generated content. Also, what I feel is important, if we really think of we're able to generate realistic 3D environments, it's very important that these technologies, they should rather assist our everyday life, right? They should not replace it. So it should maybe make it super nice if we talk over Zoom and you, you directly see the people. It's like 3D and feels more real, but it should not lead to people being more caught in the virtual world, even mm -hmm. more than they are now, mm -hmm. and have people spend even more time on the virtual profiles, and that, that would not be the right direction to go. So I think just try and be aware of these directions and always ask which direction do we want to choose. When I think about more general intelligence or all of these machine capabilities, I always think about we have an option to create a more humane world or a less humane world. And the dichotomy you describe, which is if we're faking a lot of content that's less humane in some important way, whereas if we're using it to enable ourselves and allow humans to be more creative, then that's more humane in some important way. I think you're right about these concerns and how we should think about it as a field. You know, you got from physics to here, whose work has impacted you the most? What papers have you spent the most time reading or understanding? The transition from physics to here was not so much based on specific paper or specific works from one person. One of the first papers I read when I started doing my PhD, it's called Which Training Methods for Guns Do Actually Converge? And it's from one of our former group members. The reason why this paper impacted me so much is just because I really loved the whole method or the whole approach that he takes towards building a theory or building a hypothesis and verifying this hypothesis. So at this time, guns were still even harder to train than now. <laughs> and they start from a very simple setting. So they think of what's the easiest problem that a gun can solve. And they come up with a very simple distribution. Basically, it's just one number. And it's a very nice approach to break it down to the core and really see, okay, what are the problems there? The reason why this impacted me the most is because I really like this way of approaching a problem to really think about what is the core problem that I want to investigate. And then you formulate your hypotheses and you try to narrow it down to just an experiment where you really can just test the single thing. In this paper, then they explain it in a very simple example, but then they scale up, right? And then they show that you can greatly stabilize gun training, actually, if you use their method. And I really thought that was a great approach. Can you explain a little bit what is the core hypothesis that they narrowed down to and then how did they scale it up? They show that existing gun training methods, they don't even converge if you give them a very simple setting. The generator only needs to predict one number because it's kind mm -hmm. of like in... In physics, right, when you want to optimize for something, but then you overshoot, like a pendulum and swing, but they swing by the minimum and they actually don't converge. The main idea is then to introduce something like a friction term. You put some friction in the optimization on the gradients, basically, and then you can actually converge to a good minimum. That's the core idea of the paper. Did you use that when you were training your games? Yeah, I always use it. It makes a huge difference. And actually, I think all of the state-of-the-art methods now use this regularizer. And you mentioned, you know, you really like this idea, this methodology of getting to really a core hypothesis and starting very simple. Did you apply that to any of your own work? 
I usually try to go this way. And then I talk to my professor and he tells me that's not simple enough. <laughs> and then I try to <laughs> simplify it further. <laughs> Over the course of the last one and a half years of my PhD, I always came to the point where I thought, okay, I'm still thinking way too complicated. I need to make it simpler. So for example, for the generative radiance fields project, we also mm -hmm. started with a super simple setting. And what I usually like to do for guns is mm -hmm. to start from regression. So you first try to reconstruct only a single object, right? And then you start from there because that's fairly stable. And then you condition your model on a random variable or on a latent code. But maybe mm -hmm. you first condition it even on a one-hot encoding or a class, and then you try and regress multiple objects and mm -hmm. reconstruct them first. Mm -hmm. If you got it working on reconstruction, and then you can start to introduce more randomness. And by this, you increase the difficulty of the task gradually. Mm -hmm. For mm -hmm. me, that always worked best because usually if you just apply a gun and you just train on it, it never works. It just crashes. <laughs> it's exactly what we do in our research. We always try to break it down and make it very simple. Can you describe the extremely simple thing that you started with for, for graph? We took a very simple object on a white background and we just mm -hmm. really try to reconstruct it. Our method is based on a method that's actually optimized for novel view synthesis, which is called neural radiance fields. And we augmented a bit so it can work in a gun setting. So this work works with users post images. We try to take the post images away and mm -hmm. started from very simple reconstruction. And then we mm -hmm. tried the same object, but multiple views. We introduced a gun loss at one point, but we mm -hmm. always, in the beginning, also used camera poses, used reconstruction. I remember that we also did a trade-off. So sometimes we were helping the model by still using a reconstruction loss on some images mm -hmm. and gradually increased how many images we train with a gun loss and how many images mm -hmm. we train with a reconstruction loss and mm -hmm. narrowed down this part. That's not part of the final paper, right? That was just something you were doing as you were experimenting with it? Yes, exactly. That was basically just to get it to work in a very simple setting. And then as soon as you found the balance between the generator and the discriminator, then you start scaling it up. That's really interesting. That's and actually a really interesting part. Yeah. yeah. Very helpful for other people who might be doing this for the first time, for example, right? I don't think I would necessarily have thought to do that originally. Are there any other things that didn't fit in the paper or tips or tricks or things like that? What made a huge difference was this positional encoding that we used, but that's also part of the neural radiance fields paper. So we kind of knew that that would help a lot. Without this positional encoding, our results look very blurry or overly smooth. For guns, it's also always true that you just need to do a lot of ablations to really see do you which kind of normalization do you want to use. Do you want to use batch norm or instance norm? And from the previous project and the graph project, it's hard to say which one to use because for both projects, like we found different things to work well. So usually for tricks, it's just do ablations, do a lot of them, try to figure out which setting in this case works the best. Unfortunately, it still requires a lot of intuition and usually a person who is already quite familiar with guns who can tell you a bit about it. Otherwise, it's very hard to really get familiar with it. Do you feel like you've built up that intuition over the past year and a half? Or yeah, I hope so. <laughs> But I feel I did. In the beginning, I remember that we used a special type of normalization before, like for the CVPR project, before our model was always unstable. And then we kind of normalized our weights and it, suddenly it was super stable. That was like pure magic. I, I didn't know what was going on. But because this happened, mm -hmm. you pay more attention to these things, right? And then you really get to build an intuition of why is this working or why is it not working? How big should my discriminator be? I wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier about how your focus was you wanted to make generative modeling controllable. 
your interest is in making visual scenes understandable because there's a lot in a visual scene. Why did you pick this question of generating things in a controllable way? And did you consider other questions or anything else toward this idea of visual understanding? If you can generate something or if you can create something yourself, mm -hmm. like a prototype, it's nice because you can see as a programmer what your model learned from the data. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, if you reconstruct, it's way harder to see if there's a true understanding or if it's just reproducing things. I guess why I favor the scan approach, because I feel that there's a lot of potential also for robustness. It's closer to this understanding, right? Mm. We humans can also think of different versions. If we think of an object, we can build an abstract version of it. We kind of have these prototypes in our head. This is also very closely linked to an understanding and to transferring skills or transferring concepts. There's a really interesting TED talk by this guy named Anil Seth, he's a neuroscientist, called Your Brain Hallucinates Your Reality. And it's talking about the mind's eye and how humans in our mind seem to make predictions about what we're perceiving. And the predictions are based on what we understand of what's going on right now. And he shows a bunch of really interesting examples. It feels related to this idea that, yes, humans are kind of generating something. We are not just taking what's in the world and reconstructing it in our mind. We're hallucinating something new based on some underlying model. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you can transfer this knowledge that you gathered so you can mm -hmm. apply it to new things. A reason why we can do this is because we have this abstract kind of thinking. I'm not sure if you can get there just by reconstruction. That seems more like reproducing knowledge, but for me, a vital part is how to abstract it. There might be sort of a counter argument to this, which for people understanding scenes, for example, if I imagine outside of this house, My imagination is pretty blurry. I guess I can fill in the details, but these scans are way better at making face images than I am. They have such good detail. They're amazing. Even if I open Photoshop or something, it'll take me days to make something like this. How much of the expressive power of the network is going to getting all these details right versus the understanding part? And is there a balance between those two? A lot of compute goes into the details and goes into the very tiny things. That's probably where you spend the most time in training. If you look at the course overtraining, what the model learns first are these rough structures. So mm -hmm. if you would train a gun in the setting, what it would mm -hmm. probably learn first is the rough shape of the house. At least for mm -hmm. our project, mm -hmm. the model was really fast at getting a rough shape of a car or a rough shape of a face or something that happens like super fast. Mm -hmm. But then you spend a long time um, to really get these fine details. If we talk about understanding, maybe that's not even necessary. Maybe it would already be enough if the model can get rough shapes. But I feel it's also a bit related to what do we need to learn from scratch and where can we use already known rough shapes of houses, like rough mm -hmm. 3D shapes. Maybe we can insert this knowledge somehow and we can speed up this process even more so that even the first couple of iterations, it doesn't need to spend on learning all of this. As you said, you know, most of the GAN training is like first thing gets the rough shape and then for a really long time does all the details and like you finally get good images eventually. Is there some way to invert this where you say, you know, we actually don't really care about the fine details. Instead, what we want to do is like use our training time, use our capacity to get tons of diversity. We like understand lots of different object class types and scene types. Not very well. It'll all be bad reconstructions. But we'll have a lot more richness in what we can express and think about. I don't really know how to uh, put that into an actual experiment or national network, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I'm not aware of any works that do this currently. One nice way to get something like this is if you penalize your discriminator. A discriminator gives you your training signal. If you make it, for example, blind to 
these fine details somehow, you can mm -hmm. probably prevent the network from learning it because it doesn't need to learn it anymore. <laughs> that might be a good idea, but then how to really increase diversity, I think that's always a very good question, gun training, because they have this tendency to get to mode collapse. So if you think, for example, of MNIST digits, a classical mm -hmm. example would be it can only generate ones and twos and everything else it cannot generate anymore. Yeah, the generator doesn't have expressiveness to do all the classes you have. But even the MNIST example is a really great one. Like ones and two is great. There's only eight in 10 numbers. In the real world, there's so much more diversity. Earlier you were saying you're in the GAN camp and there are other people in the VAE camp. The people in the VAE camp, what is their argument for why they are in the VAE camp and not the GAN camp? The main counter argument is that you can do inference. So you do have an encoder. And mm -hmm. with this, you can do a lot of cool things. For example, if you want to control an object and you would have an encoder, mm -hmm. it would be really nice because you could actually take a scene, encode it, and then modify exactly the objects in the scenes. And this is something that our model currently cannot do. With GANs, you can always go the other way around. So you can take the image and then go backward and search for the closest latent code to the scene. But it takes a lot of effort. And I think in that sense, VAEs are more and more elegant. Mm -hmm. And what is your kind of argument to that argument? The image quality is higher if you use a gun. There's highly engineered VAE approaches that are almost on par with it. So you can get up to that accuracy, but it's not like your normal out-of-the-shelf VAE that can produce this sharp results. I think those VAEs do have some trade-offs in terms of at least the ones that I was looking at in Europe. So it seems like they have to train for a really long time or they seem sort of impractical to train. And I wasn't sure actually how they compared to GANs in terms of training time and model size and things like that, if they were on par and the GANs also take, you know, a really long time to train and a lot of computational resources, or if it's much more efficient to train the GANs, I wasn't really sure. Yeah, to be fair, I think if you look at the state of the art GANs, like StyleGAN 2, they also mm -hmm. take ages to train. So this is why for us, it's more like which approaches perform better in the mid-range if you're not looking at top state-of-the-art approaches, but you're trying to make it train in a reasonable time. Our GANs seem to be the better way to get sharper results there. How long do your models, at both the first and the second project, how long did the models take to train as you were iterating on the experiments and also for the final one as well? During iteration, it's usually over one night. So you start it in the evening and the next morning you kind of know if it's doing the right thing. And usually, you know, after a couple of iterations, maybe after one or two hours, you even, you can tell if it does something reasonable or not. For the debugging cycles that we had, they were rather short. And then for the final versions in the papers, we trained three or four days, maybe. Maybe if we let it run for very long, we trained for a week, but only on a single GPU. We didn't use excessive cluster compute. Very, very achievable. Someone could do this at home, basically. Yeah. We have a very simple toy data set with cars. You can train this in one day on your GPU, I would say. It's so much more accessible than, oh, yeah, you need a cluster with more memory than the entire university has. <laughs> I mean, you still need a GPU, right? But I'm also a big fan of people write these short collab notebooks where you can use their model and it works in even a simpler setting and you can really just mm -hmm. run it and just play with mm -hmm. the code. You all open sourced at least one of them? Was it both of them or, or just one of both. them? Both papers both are both. open yeah. source. Yeah. Really great. yeah. <laughs> Did you guys also make um, notebooks for them? Unfortunately, we haven't yet. No. Maybe somebody else listening can go make it for you then. Yeah, that'd be great. 
so we do have scripts basically that you can just run in Python that just generate images and where you can change the camera pose to change the mm -hmm. appearance. We do have these scripts included. It's just not in a ready to run notebook, but it will do everything automatically. It downloads the weights and everything. I was thinking about what it means to really understand a scene earlier. And you were saying the benefit of the GAN approach is that it results in sharper images over the VAE approach. And Josh was saying, for what I imagine the outside of the building, it's not very sharp and it's very blurry in my head. And so I guess I was thinking toward the goal of understanding a scene, does the sharpness really matter? Or do you think a VAE has a potential equivalent ability to get to understanding? Well, there's not really a benefit why you should only use a gun for this type of mm -hmm. task. I mean, maybe it's even more beneficial in that sense to use a VAE because you can use an encoder part, right? And then you can encode scenes as well. This is just one aspect. For example, if you think of augmented reality or virtual reality, you also really want these sharp details. Just for understanding, yeah. If you want to augment data, which is also one of the big hopes for application, maybe you want to create a data set with rare events, for example, in autonomous driving. Maybe you don't want to record some scenarios and then it would be nice if you could generate them without having them in real life. In mm -hmm. this case, you actually really rely on these details because otherwise you might get a domain gap. And then mm -hmm. your model, when you train it on this data, it will actually just spot the generated images and it will treat them differently. So I'm just talking with a friend about the idea of using GANs for generating training data for other models. What do you think about that idea? Like how far off is that? Will it ever happen? What are some of the trade-offs? Yeah, GANs can be a really good opportunity to close the gap between toy data and real data. Currently, there's kind of a huge domain gap. So my hope would be that a gun can be used kind of intermediate step. So mm -hmm. you can close this domain gap. In most cases, we're not there yet because our generated images are still also having this gap to <laughs> real data. Or they're not controllable enough yet. And you need mm -hmm. to make them more controllable to generate the data that you want. Well, it seems like we're making good steps in those directions, at least. Do you have any intuitions about the important directions you want to investigate next or important open questions that you're interested in right now? Yeah, I'm currently really interested in how to make guns easier to train, right? Because that's mm. one of the main things that make the advances in our field so time-consuming. But I also think the supervision part would be really interesting to see how much do we need to learn from scratch because we train from images, but we learn everything from these images. And to incorporate somewhat more supervision, to incorporate depth, as we discussed before, I think these would also be really interesting questions. I would also like to work on this too. <laughs> <laughs> do you have controversial opinions or unusual opinions that you think other people would not agree with? Well-engined gears models are better than brute force, high compute models. So currently the trend is to increase model size, increase data sets. Recently I saw a paper about image transformers where they can say that ImageNet is a very small data set to train on. And they use these huge data sets, right? I find this super interesting and very fascinating that they can make this work. I still feel that it's nice to have a well-engineered model and try to make it efficient in terms mm -hmm. of compute, but mm -hmm. maybe that will change over time. Even if you had a really amazing, huge model, there would be a pressure to make it smaller and cheaper. There's a reason that the human brain, I think, uses 35 watts or so. Watts or so. Yeah, yeah. So something really small, like way less than a GPU, right, to do everything it does. So I think there's going to be pressure to, to make these things smaller. And I don't think the need for smaller, more efficient, better architectures is going to go away. You made a good point the other day, Josh. You said you could scale up anything and it will perform better right. but it 
more valuable from a research perspective often to find the right thing that you can eventually scale up. And to figure out that right thing is very difficult, requires a lot of thinking about what might the model architecture look like and how we debate there. Do you have any other controversial opinions aside from the scale one? One more is to represent 3D objects in terms of continuous functions. Especially in the last half year, there was another boost of this form of representation. But currently, many people still work using meshes or voxels. It's probably also biased. In my group, we do a lot of work on these continuous functions. But I really like these types of representations. I find it just very elegant to encode your representation or your 3D object as a function that you can query wherever you want. And you can choose the density which you query. And it gets rid of this discretization. It's maybe not so much Controversial, but rather not the mainstream yet. Controversial just means not the mainstream. <laughs> I strongly agree with this whole line of work is super interesting. And actually, one of my questions is going to be, how do you feel about this field getting so much hotter? I feel like there's so many people sort of swarming in, build off a nerf and related thing. We get a lot of attention, which is great. But you also need to redefine these things and you need to make sure that not suddenly everything becomes like a big blur and people just use the terminology. Mm. Many people use implicit function, the term itself, to describe a continuous function. But implicitly mm. means really that you define your object with the decision boundary of a classifier. And so it's implicitly defined. So usually like, our neural networks, they are continuous functions. And mm. what makes them continuous in the sense that it's usually used is the input space. So this input grid, that is continuous. And now I can query it at whatever point I want. It's not even the function itself where it's a special that it's a continuous function. It's rather the input that you give it that's continuous and you can query it in between. Do you think that everyone shares those definitions? Or uh, No. <laughs> the papers I read currently, I'm not sure if there's a clear line of definitions that everybody agrees on. Internally, we do agree on these definitions. It also happened to me in the beginning. I was like, can I call it implicit function or not? And then it's just very tempting. But I think there is not a strict definition that you can look up where it exactly tells you this. Um, mm. Yeah. So this is more our understanding here in the group, how, how we define it. You mentioned using continuous functions as representations for 3D objects is an interesting concept that you felt was underappreciated before. Are there other things that you feel like deserve to be more widely known or they're underappreciated? It's maybe not so much a different representation method. What I find underappreciated are like guides to how to train your models. Yeah. Uh, there's a great blog post by Andre Kapati where he tells you like a step-by-step -step recipe on how to train a network. Just for a course, I recently had a look at it again. I really like this post because it tells you that you should start simple and that you should take a look at your data. And this is something that's a bit overlooked because it's become so simple. You just use PyTorch and you import like the models and then you train and you can write a nice code in, I don't know, a hundred lines. But like all the subtleties, they kind of get lost there. But this is why I really liked this recipe. Also what it tells you is that if you're lucky, your network will crash, right? And you will get an error and you will mess up. And that's a good case because in the bad case, you will not know. And maybe you discover it after you submitted it somewhere and then you notice, oh, this part is not doing what I thought it would do. And then you change it and everything changes. And it happened to me in our first project, luckily in an early stage, but mm -hmm. I didn't notice that my model was actually not doing what I thought it would be doing. It, it cannot be emphasized enough that people should really be careful when they train these things and not just train and it works. And great, if I don't get an error, that's perfect. Now it works. 
What was the thing that was overlooked in the first product? We used the final sigmoid function. We accidentally applied mm -hmm. it once in the loss function, and we mm -hmm. also applied it in the model. And mm -hmm. that greatly harmed our <laughs> gradients and made training a lot worse. We had another bug at some point with the normalization where we had a reshape error, where we thought it was channels by batch size or something, mm -hmm. but it was the other way around and we didn't notice because we reshaped. And in the blog post, he also gives you a tip on how to do this, that you can actually track the gradients and see if you get the right gradients. We should have probably done this and then it wouldn't have happened. Those are great to share also and to help other people realize the importance of doing this ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, read that. Yeah, blog. the first, I don't know, five minute read or 10 minute read is really just about the data set. And yeah. I feel that's also justified, right? That you yeah. do need to spend a lot of time on your data. And for the gun training, we noticed that, for example, we make the assumption that our objects are centered in the scene. It's really important that this is also true in your data and that you mm. actually prepare your data right, especially in the beginning when you try to get it to work. If you're not careful enough there, I think that can also cost a lot of time if you afterwards mm. find out, oh, yeah, sure, it couldn't have worked. Were there any very recent papers that really stood out to you? There's a couple of papers, but one that I have in mind where they train a fully connected neural network to generate images, which are almost on par with StyleGun, like FID-wise. It's called Image Generators with Conditionally Independent Pixel Synthesis. It was kind of surprising still that it works because usually we thought with these big images, convolutions are like the thing to go. It was just very surprising that just by conditioning on a common latent code, then actually using fully connected network without any spatial correlations, you can still generate quite coherent looking images and they still make sense. The image quality is really, really good, but they don't use any convolutions. That's so interesting. What are the advantages of using a fully connected network and conditioning on the common latent code over and using something convolutional? The main advantage is that you can parallelize the computation if you use an MLP because everything's independent aside from the shared latent code. At least from what I got, this is the main advantage of these methods. You mentioned there were a couple papers. What else? There's one that is called continuous image generation, something like this. And it's also a similar approach. They found that the other approach for them, it didn't work as well. So they kind of take a different turn. And I think they need to share a little bit of information between the layers, but I'm not entirely sure anymore. They all generated images from a shared latent code, but they all generated images using only fully connected layers. This is just a very new approach. It's somewhat also what we did with the generative radiance fields, right? So we also used a fully connected network and we generated images. In terms of the image fidelity and the photorealism, these methods are a lot better. They're not really controllable or anything. They're more like the conventional gun. I find it super impressive. They got this to work and that they can get spatially coherent images from this. Maybe the basis for these works was this positional encoding that we also talked about before a little bit. Now you can encode your um, coordinate grid that gave rise to a lot of more interest into these fully connected networks because now you can get these really sharp images from coordinate-based representations. There's another paper that's called Fourier Features. I'm not sure about the whole title. And then there's another one called Sinusoidal Activation Functions. These two works, they came out fairly at the same time and they are kind of touching the same problem. And I found them really interesting to read, yeah. One of the main authors was Vincent Fitzman, and I think we're going to have him on the podcast in another week or two, probably. So, oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, I guess then he will also tell you a lot about the continuous functions or the implicit functions. <laughs> you and Josh have very similar taste in these papers. Are there any areas that you're really excited to see develop over the next few years? 
One area that I would love to see develop is how close we can get to generating realistic 3D scenarios on scenes and mm -hmm. how this whole research area develops. Also linked to this, one of the groups at the institute that I work, they also do a lot with human modeling. I would also love to see how far you can push it in that area. Ultimately, maybe you just quickly take a selfie or something and you get your 3D avatar and it's targeted to you. And then maybe, I don't know, you can use generative model to change your hairstyle or something like this. This whole idea of modeling our world more or less in 3D, how far can we push it in the next years? Another thing is in general, the robustness of the models. So we also work a lot on autonomous driving. The models are currently not robust enough so that they can really be deployed or go out and can just be used. So it would be really nice to have even more theory behind neural networks. If we can make any progress, I know that there is a lot of works already that touch on this area, but it still feels that we do rely a lot on intuition and not only in generative models, right? In all areas, very often read in a paper like, We think that it's this and this is the explanation, but it's very rare that you actually see a proof that this is the explanation. <laughs> That's a very important point that we can advance in this area to get some more guarantees or to make models more robust, or at least to know when they fail. That's very important because otherwise I don't see how we can use these models in our everyday lives and really rely on them at some point. What are the highest leverage areas that might increase robustness or where you'd like to see more work? in increasing robustness? There's a fair amount in adversarial examples. Mm -hmm. What I personally would like to see is to go back more into this generative setting. I know that there are some works that also train robust models based on generative models. And this idea that if you learn this prototype, then you have a rough idea and it's harder to get confused if you have this rough prototype. It's also, I think, still fairly recent. It would be very interesting to see if it's really true that this understanding that I think guns can have or can learn, mm -hmm. which makes them a bit better, a bit more robust. If we can actually use this to really train robust models or determining confidence. If you would imagine mm -hmm. you have a gun and it is very good at giving you the same data distribution, you could use the gun to visualize what your model has learned. Maybe the only last question that I have is a two-part thing. One, is there anything that you feel stuck on or like, oh, like, I'm not really sure how to do this. Similarly, is there anything you would like people to reach out with? Are you looking for any collaborators on any particular thing or people to send you papers about problem X? Is there anything you want from the community and people who are listening? If somebody knows any related work to generative models and increasing robustness, that mm -hmm. would be great. If people can send papers, I haven't had a close look. Uh, I just know some works from like one or two years ago and I was very excited about it, but then I kind of lost tracks. This is really lovely. Yeah, this Thanks was great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun, K-A-N-J-U-N. And our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time, 